Testament of the book of, or the letter of Jude, and this time the verses 18 through 13. But let us also read these first seven verses for the text as a reminder of what is stated there. They parallel closely to what we read together in Ephesians 2. You will note that as you read, read that starting with verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and denying Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered these people out of your hands and later destroyed those who loved them. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for the judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Now back to our text. In the very same way, these demons pollute their own bodies, reject authority, slander celestial beings. But even the, the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Jesus, did not dare to bring any slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. If these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand, and what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed their property to Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in the full light of God. These men are blemishes at your love feast, pleading with you to help his life to fall, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, hot and cold, without fruit, nothing, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been created forever. After the sermon, we will sing from Psalm 73, the stanzas 1, 3, and 9. Beloved congregation, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, Last week, the Supreme Court of Canada dealt with the, with the issue of freedom of speech in Canada. Judges had to make a decision. Justice Saskatchewan Human Rights Commission wanted the court to limit the speech of a certain Mr. Wadkam and others to condemn homosexuality in no uncertain terms. The world does not want to be condemned by, condemned by Christians or by anyone else. They do not want their own freedom to be curtailed.
details. They want to live the way that they want, and nobody can ever stand in their way. They will therefore do anything to prevent others from commenting on this new lifestyle, this lifestyle that they're living. Does that scare you? Does that make you afraid for the future? Does that make you reluctant to bring children into this world? What's going to happen to them? What are the kinds of restrictions that will be put on them? Or should the Supreme Court's decision just not totally limit the free speech of Christians? And what about the future? Will we be able to practice our religion freely? Will our children or we be persecuted? Will we come to harm? In that respect, the letter of Jude is quite comforting. Jude says in verse 4 that the condemnation of godless men was written about long ago. In other words, their faith has already been sealed. They stand condemned. That is the comfort that he wants to give to his readers who are in the midst of persecution. In the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, that is especially important as well. There we read about the many calamities that are going to come upon man on the earth. But these are told within the context of the victory of the Lamb, the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has not only sealed the faith of those who already stand condemned, but also the faith of his children. As long as they put their faith in him, his children cannot come to harm. They are safe. And so are our children. And that's also how Jude starts off his letter. He begins this letter by stating that we are loved by God the Father and kept by the Lord Jesus. But Jude does not write this letter in order to warn us about the dangers from those outside of the church. Such blatant attacks on the church from the outside are to be expected. And we can clearly see for what they are. Jude is more concerned about the attacks from within the church. And that's a lot more subtle. And that's a lot harder to deal with. He's afraid that those within the church are going to be led astray by false teachers. The church has to be vigilant. The fact that you are loved by God and preserved by the Lord Jesus Christ is not something that you just passively accept. It doesn't mean that now you can sit back and relax. No, we have to know what it means to live as people who belong to Christ, as those who hate sin and who do not want to partake of the sin of the world. We have to be aware of those who want to bring the world into the church. And so Jude warns against and exposes false teachers and also the believer's warnings concerning sin. The old Jude exposes and warns against false teachers for, for they reject divine authority their blemishes in your midst and they are doomed for destruction. In verse 8, Jude continues his attack on those men who have secretly slipped in among them. 
In verse 4, he calls them godless men who change the grace of God into a license for immorality and who deny that the Lord Jesus is their only sovereign and Lord. The Jew then proceeds to compare these false teachers to the unbelieving Israelites, to the rebellious Israel, and to the perverted Sodomites. He begins the text in verse 8 with the phrase, in the very same way. The same three evils that he mentioned before, he mentions again, except now in reverse order. The pollution of their bodies matches the homosexual act of Sodom and Gomorrah. The sin of rejecting authority echoes the rebellions of the rebellion of angels, verse 6. And the sin of slandering celestial beings is equivalent to the unbelief of the Israelites in the desert, verse 5. Now he calls these false prophets who pollute their bodies dreamers. He's not exactly sure what he refers to here. What kind of dreams do they dream? Some think it has to do with their sexual pollution and their general tendency to give in to the flesh. For their dreaming is mentioned in the same sentence where the pollution of their bodies is mentioned. Others think that their dreaming refers to the special revelation they claim to receive, that they claim to have a direct conduit to God. They want everyone to think that whatever they say is the truth, even if it is a perversion of the truth, even if they did not have such a direct revelation from God. I don't think we need to be making a choice between these two. Both types of dreaming apply to these people. First of all, they dream perverted dreams. People who are in the grip of a certain sin, especially sexual sin, are so enslaved to it that they're always thinking about it. It's constantly on their mind. And they're always looking for more and different experiences. That's how they dream gratification. They dream about it day and night and look for every opportunity to engage in it. Now then, these false prophets who dream these things and do these things actually belong to the church. And they want others to think that there is nothing wrong with what they're doing. And they make the claim that what you do in your body is not all that important, as long as you believe. After all, we have a God who is full of grace and who forgives us our sins. Let's not be legalistic. Let's let each other be. And you may think that that is not something that we encounter in our churches nowadays. And that's true, generally speaking. I'm not aware of any people like that in, within our Emmanuel Church. If there are, I don't know. But we are not immune from this. I am aware of a church of our federation that it has happened in the past that the sin of sexual abuse was covered up. It was not just one member, but several members in the church who were engaged in it and who protected each other. Even those in leadership protected them. Oh, sure, they knew that it was a sin, but they didn't want to deal with it. And these men engaging in their filthy activities and through their pious talk, knew how to treat others.
others on your side. You'd condemn this kind of thing in no uncertain term. We may not cover that up. Such people need to be exposed and dealt with through the law and through church discipline. Dreamers are also those who claim to have an exceptional relationship with God. God gives them special revelation. He directly communicates with them, so they say and intimate, and they will have you believe that they can continue to serve God in their own perverted way. Well, there is nothing new under the sun. Jeremiah already warned against such false prophets who claim to have a special revelation from God. He writes in Jeremiah 23, verse 25 and following, I have heard what the prophets say who prophesy lies in my name. They say, I had a dream, I had a dream. Yes, declares the Lord. I am against the prophets who wag their own tongues and yet declare the Lord declares. Indeed, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, declares the Lord. They tell them and lead my people astray with their reckless lies, yet I did not send or appoint them. They do not benefit these people in the least, declares the Lord. Thus far, Jeremiah. Verse 16, it tells us that these men follow their own evil desires and that they flatter people to gain advantage. Jude says the same thing about them as Peter does, who calls them creatures of instinct. In other words, they're like animals. For that reason, another translation says that they are irrational animals. To people such as that fully, we give in to their sinful passions. They don't care whom they hurt. It's all about me. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, this letter of Jude was not written for others out there someplace. No, this letter is written for me and for you to warn us, to make us think. Let me ask you, what are the kinds of things you dream about? Satan wants us to dream our own dreams. He wants us to know our interpretations of the Bible. He wants us to think that even though we may have some secret sin that we think nobody else knows about, that we can get away with it. It's okay. We can ignore certain parts of the Bible so that we can keep on doing whatever we are doing. As long as we do some of the other things, like going to church and reading the Bible, then for the rest it doesn't matter. Well, that's a lie. God does not want us to live in our sins. He hates sin. Oh, sure, he knows that we are sinners. We all sin against God's commandments all the time. And he forgives us our sins. But it doesn't mean that we can now sin to our heart's content. No, we have to fight against sin with every fiber of our body. So that's what you do if you love the Lord Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, boys and girls, if you do not daily repent from your sins, then you will be like those false teachers that Jude warns against who reject authority. What he means with that is that then you set aside the law of God. So 
those false teachers show contempt for Christ and his gospel. As Pete also mentioned, Jesus wore the wonderful feet of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They wanted to be free from anyone who tried to restrict their way of life. So they rejected God's authority. In order to make this point crystal clear, he gives the example of the, of the archangel Michael. He says that Michael respected the authority given to him by God so much that he did not even dare to rebuke Satan on his authority. The archangel Michael wanted to be true to the meaning of his name, which is, who is like God. He knew that all authority comes from God. It's the exact opposite of Satan. Satan, as we could read in Isaiah 14, verse 14, said in his rebellion against God, I will make myself the most, like the most high. And he offered the same thing to Adam and Eve when he told them that if they ate of the tree, that then they will be like God. Nobody is like God. All authority comes from him. And Michael understood that even though he was one of the highest angels, if not the highest angel of God, he did not have any authority except in the name of the Lord. And so when there was a dispute about the body of Moses, Michael himself did not rebuke him, but he calls on the name of the Lord and he says, the Lord rebuke you. But what did the devil want to do with the body of Moses? What exactly was that dispute all about? Well, the text doesn't make that clear, nor does any other scripture passage do that. But we do know that the devil's intent is always to lead God's people astray. How could he do that if he had control over the body of Moses, you might ask? Well, likely he had in mind that the people of God commit adultery with his body, hoping that they would erect a shrine so that they would worship Moses rather than God, that they would worship a saint rather than God. And the Lord wanted to prevent that. For that reason, the Lord made sure, as we can read in Deuteronomy 34, verse 5, that no one would know where the body of Moses was hidden. And so how could Satan even gain control over his body and have a dispute with God about it, you may wonder. Hasn't Satan already been defeated? Yes, he has. Yet, brothers and sisters, Satan still acts as the accuser. That's his role. That's what his name means. He is still on a chain. His power is limited, but he still has power. It says in Hebrews 2 verse 14 that Satan is the one who holds the power of death. But it also says there that it is through the death of Christ that we have been freed from death. In spite of that victory, Satan still accuses man before God. Good thing, therefore, that we have the mediator, Jesus Christ, in heaven to plead our cause for us. And so Satan may have disputed with the archangel Michael about the fact that Moses had slain the Egyptian in cold blood and that he did not obey God always in the wilderness either. For that reason, Satan claimed 
certain right over him. But Michael knew that Moses was a child of God nevertheless, and that his sins are forgiven. And therefore he called upon the name of his commander-in-chief, of his commander-in-chief, the Lord God himself. We also do well to understand that we rebuke anyone blaspheme the name of the Lord. We may not do it because they have hurt us in the first place, but because we have sinned against God. And then it is also truly an act of love. And therefore, office bearers may also apply discipline only in the name of the Lord. We have no authority of ourselves. God gives us all authority. And we had better be sure that when we rebuke someone, we do it in accordance with the standard that God has set. The false teachers in the Christian church understood none of this. They derive authority only from themselves. They're not spiritual, but carnal. They only have their own interests at heart. So they rebuke and throw their weight around with impunity. They do not see themselves answerable to God. They answer to no one. And so they act like animals who only follow their instincts. And so Jude says to them, in verse 11, Woe to them. And then he gives some more examples of prominent men who also rejected the authority of God. The first one he mentions is Cain. The difference between Cain and Abel was this. Abel's heart beat for the Lord. Cain's didn't. Both were members of the church of God. They both had been born as covenant children. The Lord had made his promise to Cain as well as Abel. But Cain threw all that away. He did not believe. He did not want to be accountable to God. He wanted to follow his own heart. And therefore God rejected him and his offering. But Abel, though he was slain by his wicked brother, lives forever with his maker. As we can read in Hebrews 11, verse 4, By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. And next, Jude gives the example of Balaam. Jude brings us to the time when Israel was going through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. At that time, they defeated many nations by the hand of the Lord. King Balak of Moab was terrified of the people of God. Understandably. And the Lord God was obviously with the Israelites. But instead instead of turning to the God of Israel, to the Almighty God who made all these things happen, the creator of the universe... He instead turned to the heathen priest Balaam so that Balaam would curse the Israelites. However, the Lord God made it so that Balaam would be unable to speak the curse and that instead he would speak words of blessing. The Lord made it happen that Balaam would only be able to speak the words which the Lord himself had put in his mouth. And so that failed. But Balaam, was not badly received for an off the track. He still wanted the money that King Balak had offered him. And so he advised the king of Moab that there was another way 
that the people of Israel, God's people, God's church, could be rendered ineffective. He says the way to do that is to have the Israelites mix with the heathen nations, give them a taste of the good life, the good life that we have to offer them, a life where they can give full vent to their carnal passions. God's people were easily persuaded. child of God, a little friendship with the world and worldly pleasures, it won't hurt you. And so the people fell for it. You know what happened? God judged his people. We read in Numbers 31 that 24,000 people were killed because of the wrath of God, because of their immorality. That was the immediate effect. But because Israel continued to do this, in the end, Israel became swallowed up by the world when they were sent into exile. Only a small remnant came back. And if that is not enough, Jude also gives the example of the rebellion of Korah. Really wants to bring this point home. As no doubt you know, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram rebelled against they did not want Moses as their leader. But since Moses had been placed in a position of authority by God himself, they in reality did not reject Moses, but they rejected the Lord God. And that's the way it is, brothers and sisters. Anyone who rejects the authority of the office bearers who rule in the name of the Lord, such a person rejects ultimately the authority of God. Think about that want to come to you and speak to you in the name of the Lord. If you reject them, you also rejected the Lord God. The punishment of these men with their 250 followers was that the ground split open and swallowed them up. Having taken the believers in the Old Testament once more, as he also did in the first part of his letter, he now once again describes these so-called leaders directly. He says that they are blemishes in their midst. That's in the second part. Jude points out that what the behavior of these false prophets was like during, these, during the love feasts. You may wonder, what are love feasts? Well, during the early church, it was the practice to have a meal together every first day of the week. And during that meal, everything would be shared. You had present in the church slaves who had to get up real early in the morning before they had to serve their master, who would also be part of that, and also in the evening after their duties was done. But it was also rich people, owners of slaves, who were members of the church. While they would get together and have their love feast together, the rich would share with the poor, and in this way, the communion of saints was practiced in a very wonderful way. After that meal, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But what did these false leaders in the church do? It says in the text that they ate with them without the slightest 
And these men were interested only in themselves. They were egoists through and through. They didn't even care or make those slaves feel unworthy. It literally says there that they were shepherding themselves. And yet these men were supposed to be shepherds of the flock. And they were to put the interest of the flock above themselves. They were to protect them from harm and feed them. But instead, these false prophets did the opposite. They cared nothing about the flock ultimately. And so Jude calls them blemishes at their love feasts. A blemish mars the purity of an offering. You make something beautiful ugly. That's what the false prophets did to the church. The church is a beautiful bride of God. And yet, they stain that beautiful bride. The ESV, the English Standard Version, and other translations state that they are hidden griefs. Indeed, that is also the original meaning of the word that is used here. A hidden reef is a dangerous obstacle on which a ship can be wrecked when it is approaching land. And that's what those false prophets are like. Because they are hidden in the church, they are very dangerous. They can shipwreck you. In other words, they can cause you to go astray and be destroyed. The picture that Jude paints of them is further enhanced by the other things he says about them. He calls them clouds without rain. Such waterless crowd, clouds promise rain but fail to produce. Nothing is more disappointing to a farmer desperately waiting for rain to see clouds appear which only blow over. The same thing can be said about the false teachers. They promise salvation while in reality they leave the people of God in their sin. They tell them God overlooked your sin. After all, you're a member of his church. You do not have to worry about anything at all. But they say such things for their own interest. Not because they care for the flock of Christ. Not because they have hearts of compassion. But only so that they can maintain their own sinful lifestyle. Such a false leader promises to hand out the forgiveness of God. When in reality is not allowed to do so at all. We may not live in our sins. Although we sin, we may not say it is okay for us to sin. A spiritual leader, a true spiritual leader, leads his flock to repentance. His aim is to lead the believer to the true forgiveness in Christ. He tries to open the eyes of his fellow believers to the sin in which they live. And he also wants himself to examine himself in the same way so that he doesn't become a stumbling block. And then to seek the forgiveness with God. Only in that way can true reconciliation be sought with the Lord. These false teachers hit the people also. In this way, they're like waterless clouds. And therefore, such leaders do not bear fruit either. All they do is break up the congregation of God and lead the people to discontent and divisiveness. So Jude also speaks of them as autumn trees without fruit and uprooted. Christ dead, no fruit, no 
those of you who came to your conclusions. Furthermore, they are nothing more than wild waves of the sea, he says. If you ever walk along the beach after a storm, you will know what Jude is talking about. These wild waves cause a lot of destruction, and the evidence of such destruction can be seen on the shore where all kinds of debris is washed up. Think about the destructive waves of these men for the past few years. What did the man actually do? And he also calls these men wandering stars. You cannot be bent on a wandering star. And especially in those days, the traveler would be able to fix his destination by the fixed stars that they had, the GPS locator, that were done by the stars. But a wandering star would only lead them in the wrong direction. That's also what makes Paul's problem so much. But God does not leave such false leaders unpunished. That brings us to our third point. He says about them the same thing as he did about the fallen angels in verse 6. For he says, These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the grain dealer. Such false teachers are consigned to the same place as their father the devil, and therefore he says in verse 13 that the blackness darkness has been reserved for them forever. In other words, on earth they may have the following of some people, even people in the church. They may enjoy a certain amount of respect here with people who do not see through such hypocrisy. And they may have their riches here on earth, which they hoard for themselves, and they may have an easy life. But in the end, that's all they're going to have. And their punishment will be great. It's a life without God forever. And their punishment will be greater than anybody else. For they were placed by God in their position of authority through their men in the church. They were put into that position to lead people to Christ. But instead they led them away from Christ. They were fruitless. Woe to them. I know the message of this morning is a gloomy one, full of warning and condemnation. But you know that these words have to be spoken. For these are not really gloomy words. These are words of love, brothers and sisters. Jude, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, is concerned about the church. He is concerned that they are going to be led astray, that they are walking away from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same concern that the Lord Jesus himself had. As we know, when he writes to the seven churches in Asia, in the book of Revelation, where he also warns those churches against the same kind of thing, he warns us because he loves us. And so think about what he said at the very beginning of his letter. Jude began by reminding them about the riches that they have in Christ and by reminding them that they are recipients of the mercy, peace, and love of Christ and by reminding them that they are kept by the Lord Jesus. In other words, they are protected by the love of Christ. That's for you and for me. God loves us. It's for that very reason that we have to be watchful. That we don't become like the world. The world may rave 
judge against us. But as long as we stay close to the Lord Jesus, and as long as we hate sin, like he hates sin, he will never abandon you. Don't be afraid. God is our refuge, as we will sing in a moment. But as for me, in God we trust. 